0: Welcome to episode number 22 of Calm History. This is a serial episode featuring part five of Titanic, a survival story. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone. So you can just chill and relax. All right. This is part five of a Titanic survivor's first person account. Here's a summary of the prior episode to remind you where things left off. As the Titanic began sinking, many, but not all of the passengers were loaded into the lifeboats. Chaos and confusion ensued as the lifeboats were lowered to the ocean. The episode ended with the passengers in the lifeboats wondering if they can survive the frigid night. In this episode, the lifeboat passengers watched the Titanic sink and then struggled to stay warm. Fear of not being rescued resonates as the small boats drift in the icy sea. This episode will conclude with the sighting of another ship, but how many passengers will have the energy to reach it in time? Part 6, titled The Miraculous Rescue, will be released on this podcast in the near future. If you'd like to listen to all six parts of this story right now as a single continuous two and a half hour mega episode, then just become a Silk Plus member and listen to bonus episode number eight. This is free for a limited time and it also includes access to 500 other podcast episodes, including my other Titanic series called Titanic 360. In the Titanic 360 bonus series, you'll hear what the captain, crew, and other passengers were experiencing during these same moments as our passenger in this series. If that interests you, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay. Time to step inside my time machine of tranquility. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. Titanic. A Survival Story Part 5 A Drift in the Ice-Cold Sea As we watched from the safety of our lifeboat, the front of the Titanic sank lower and lower into the sea. This resulted in the rear portion of the ship to lift higher out of the water. We could see the porthole lights of the bow disappearing into the water while the stern porthole lights rose higher out of the water. It was evident that she was not to stay afloat much longer. The captain stoker of our lifeboat now told the oarsmen to row away as hard as they could. There were two major reasons given for this decision. First, As the ship sank, she would create a pool of suction along with a large wave. The suction could pull us under, or the wave could swamp our crowded boat. The second major reason to move further away was that an explosion might result from the water getting to the boilers. This could result in debris and shrapnel hitting our boat. At about 2.15 a.m., we were one or two miles away from the Titanic. We could see that the captain's bridge, near the front of the ship, was now entering the water at this time. It just seemed a matter of minutes before she sank. Our oarsmen had stopped rowing, and all in the lifeboat were motionless. Together, we watched the Titanic in absolute silence, except for some who could not look, and they buried their heads on each other's shoulders. The lights of the grand ship still shone with the same brilliance, but not all. Many of those lights were now below the surface of the water, And then, as we gazed awestruck, her front end started sinking more quickly, while her back end rose into the air even further. As her back end swung upwards, her lights went out for the first time, came on again for a single flash, and then went out for good. As they did, The ship emitted a loud noise. Many have described it as an explosion, but I heard it differently. It wasn't a sudden noise like an explosion. Rather, it was a massive, prolonged noise that went on for about 15 to 20 seconds. I believe it may have been the engines and other machinery falling through the ship after coming loose from their bolts and bearings. The prolonged noise was part roar, groan, rattle, and smash. It probably was the sound of these heavy items falling through the compartments and smashing everything in their way. It was a noise no one had heard before and no one wishes to hear again. When the noise was over, the Titanic was upright like a column. We could now only see about 150 feet of her back end sticking out of the water. She stayed like this for five minutes, or perhaps less. She then tilted and slid down into the water, At an angle, at about 2.20 a.m., the Titanic sunk out of sight as the sea closed over her. That was the last we saw of that beautiful ship, which we had all boarded just four days ago. There seemed a great sense of loneliness when we were left on the sea in a small boat without the Titanic. We waited for that huge wave, which we thought might come. The wave we'd heard so much about from the crew. The wave that they said had been known to travel for miles. That wave never came, and I don't recall hearing any boilers explode either. There was a sound we did hear, though. The cries of hundreds of our fellow passengers struggling in the ice-cold water. We hadn't heard these cries before the Titanic sank. We had assumed everyone who was not on the ship were in lifeboats. The cries of the drowning passengers floated across the quiet sea and filled us with stupefaction. The night was clear, frosty and still, the water smooth, and the cries must have carried on its level surface for miles. We longed to return and rescue at least some of those drowning, but we knew it was impossible. Our boat was filled to standing room, and to return would mean the swamping of us all. Our Captain Stoker told his crew to row away from the cries. We tried to sing to keep from thinking of them, but there was no heart for singing in the boat at that time. The cries, which were loud and numerous at first, died away gradually, one by one, I think the last of them must have been heard nearly 40 minutes after the Titanic sank. Life belts would keep the survivors afloat for hours, but the cold water was what stopped the cries. I wish I could omit this part of the drowning victims from this story, but for two reasons it's not possible. First, as a matter of history, It should be put on record. Second, those cries were not only an appeal for help from those people in the water to the lifeboats around them, but those cries also represent an appeal to the whole world to do whatever it takes to prevent a tragedy like this from ever happening again. Shortly after the Titanic sank out of view, we were aware of three other nearby lifeboats. We called out occasionally across the darkness to each other just to keep in touch. We found out that these other boats didn't have any officers aboard, nor did the other three boats near us have a light, and we missed light badly. We couldn't see each other in the darkness, but more importantly, any ships that were rushing to the Titanic's rescue may not see us. We now had this additional concern of a rescue ship plowing into some unlit lifeboats. We felt around again for the lantern beneath our feet and along the sides of our boat. I managed this time to get down to the locker below the tiller platform and open the front by removing a board. I found nothing but the zinc air tank which renders the boat unsinkable if flipped over. I don't think there was a light to be found anywhere in our boat. We also felt around for food and water, but found none. Not that we wanted any food or water at that moment. We just thought of the amount of time that would elapse before the Olympic picked us up in the afternoon. We came to the conclusion that there also wasn't any food in our lifeboat. But here we were mistaken. Every lifeboat that was later recovered was searched and inventoried. According to the officers who did the inspections, biscuits and water were found on each one. Towards 3 a.m., we saw a faint glow in the sky ahead, the first gleams we thought of the coming dawn. We weren't certain of the time and perhaps too eager for any relief from darkness. The soft light increased for a time and died away a little, glowed again, and then remained stationary for some minutes. It suddenly came to me, the northern lights, and so it was, the light-arched fan-like across the northern sky, with faint streamers reaching towards the pole star. I'd seen them in England some years ago, and I knew them again. A sigh of disappointment went through the boat as we realized that daylight had not arrived. We shifted our hope back to being rescued. All night long we'd watched the horizon with eager eyes for signs of the lights of a ship. We heard from our captain Stoker that the first appearance would be a single light on the horizon, the masthead light. This would be followed shortly by a second light lower down on the deck. If these two lights remained in vertical alignment and the distance between them increased as the light drew nearer, we might be certain it was a steamer ship but we kept getting tricked by the rotation of the stars through the night sky. Stars would rise and appear on the clear horizon, while others sank below it. At one point, we saw two lights close together and thought, this must be our double light. But, as we gazed across the miles that separated us, the lights slowly drew apart. We realized that they were the lanterns of two lifeboats at different distances from us, one behind the other. We kept seeing new bright objects in the distance, followed by dashed hopes. However, it wouldn't be correct to say we were unhappy in those early morning hours. The cold that settled down on us was the only real discomfort. We kept that at bay by not thinking too much about it, as well as by vigorous friction and gentle stamping on the floor. We had discovered that vigorous stamping made too much noise. I never heard that anyone in our boat had any after-effects from the cold. Even the stoker, who was so thinly clad, came through without harm. At last, the moment came we'd all been dreaming about. At about 3.30 a.m., someone in our boat called our attention to a faint, faraway gleam in the southeast. We all turned quickly to look, and there it certainly was a light streaming up from behind the horizon like a distant flash of a warship's searchlight. Then we heard a faint boom like guns afar off, and the light died again. The stoker, who had lain all night under the tiller, sat up suddenly, the overcoat hanging from his shoulders. He stared across the sea, towards the source of the sound and shouted, that was a cannon. But it was not. It was a rocket flare from a ship coming to our rescue. The flare was a preliminary message from that ship to cheer our hearts until she arrived. We stared at the horizon in absolute silence, Creeping over the edge of the sea where the flash had been, we saw a single light and then a second light below it. In a few minutes, the lights were well above the horizon and they remained in line. But we had been deceived before and we waited a little longer before we allowed ourselves to say we were safe. The lights came up rapidly, for certain it was a ship, and she was bearing down rapidly on us. Shouts, gasps, and sighs of celebration erupted. We didn't know what sort of a vessel was coming, but we knew she was coming quickly. We wanted them to see us, not just to rescue us, but also to prevent them from colliding with us. We searched for paper, rags, anything that would burn. We were even quite prepared to burn our coats if necessary. A hasty paper torch was twisted out of letters found in someone's pocket. They were lit and held aloft by the stoker standing on the tiller platform. The small torch shone in flickers on the faces of the occupants of the boat. This flame also allowed me to see, for the first time, the presence of that awful thing which had caused the whole terrible disaster. Ice. The sea around us had little chunks of ice the size of a fist bobbing up and down. As our paper torch died out, The stoker threw the burning remnants of paper overboard. Although we didn't know it at that time, the ship heading towards us was not the Olympia, but rather the Carpathia. As soon as the Titanic had called for help, the Carpathia turned and headed towards the location. She covered the distance in three and a half hours. A speed well beyond her normal capacity. The three doctors on board each took charge of a saloon, ready to render help to anyone who needed it. The stewards and catering staff were hard at work preparing hot drinks and meals. The purser's staff were ready with blankets and berths as soon as the shipwrecked survivors got on board. On deck, the sailors readied lifeboats, prepared to lower them if necessary. To haul survivors onto the ship, the sailors also prepared rope ladders, cradle chairs, shoulder harnesses, and bags to carry children or infants. On the bridge, the captain and his officers were peering into the darkness eager to catch the first signs of the crippled Titanic. They hoped, in spite of the last message stating, sinking by the head, to find her still afloat when they arrived. As the Carpathia neared the reported coordinates of the distress call, she slowed her engines. The major reason for doing this was recorded in her logbook as follows. Went full speed ahead during the night. Stopped at 4 a.m. with an iceberg dead ahead. With our torch burnt out and in darkness once again, we saw the lights of our potential rescue ship stop. A sigh of relief went up when we were confident that we didn't need to scramble out of her path. We watched as she slowly swung round and revealed herself to us as a large steamer with all her portholes alight. The way those lights came slowly into view was one of the most wonderful things we shall ever see. We had thought that we were going to have to wait until the afternoon to be rescued. But now, it was only 4 a.m., just a few hours after the Titanic sank, and our rescuer had arrived. It seemed almost too good to be true. I think everyone's eyes filled with tears, men's as well as women's. Thank God was murmured in heartfelt tones all around the boat. Our lifeboat swung around, and the crew began their long row to the steamer. Our boat captain called for a song, and he led off with, Pull for the shore, boys. The crew took it up, and the passengers joined in, but I think one verse was all they sang. Our emotional gratitude was just too overwhelming for us to sing very steadily. Instead, we tried a cheer, and that went better. It was easier to express our feelings with a noise. Timing and tune were not necessary ingredients in a cheer. Another event added to our joy and gratitude. The arrival of dawn. We now had a rescue ship and a slice of daylight. Our happiness was complete. Looking towards the Carpathia in the faint light, we saw what seemed to be two large fully rigged sailing ships near the horizon. We decided that they must be fishing vessels, which had seen the Carpathia stop. Perhaps they were now waiting to see if she wanted help of any kind. In a few minutes, more daylight shone on them. It was revealed that they were actually huge icebergs peaked in a way that readily suggested a ship. When the sun rose higher, it turned them pink and sinister. They looked Towering like rugged white peaks of rock out of the sea, and terrible as was the disaster one of them had caused. All around, we saw lifeboats making their way for the Carpathia. We could even hear their shouts and cheers. Our boat captain shouted to the crew to keep pulling strong on the oars. Our crew rowed hard in friendly rivalry with other boats to be among the first to reach the ship. We were hampered by our full load, and also because we had to row around a huge iceberg in our path. We gave that iceberg a wide berth due to the danger of projecting ledges. We just weren't inclined to take any risks for the sake of a few more minutes when safety was so near. Once clear of that iceberg, we could read the ship's name for the first time. Carpathia, a name we we're likely to never forget. We rowed up to her port side at about 4.30 a.m. When we arrived to the ship, about nine other lifeboats had beat us there. We were not dismayed, of course. We were happy to have arrived. At about this time, a faint breeze came from the west. This was the first breath of wind we had felt since the Titanic had stopped our engines. For the next few hours, other lifeboats continued to reach the ship. During this time, the wind continued to increase, challenging these final boats with choppy waters. It was even a concern that the straggling lifeboats could get swamped by the rough conditions. The lifeboats, which had been lowered on the starboard side of the Titanic, like ours, were in the first wave of boats to reach the rescue ship. This is because the Carpathia had arrived to the area which was closer to the starboard side of the Titanic when it went down. It is likely that all the lifeboats had initially spread outwards like a radiating wave away from the sinking ocean liner. So the lifeboats which were lowered on the port side of the Titanic, were the last to arrive to the rescue ship. Some of these port side boats had to row across the place where the Titanic sank to get to the Carpathia through the debris of chairs and wreckage of all kinds. When we arrived to the Carpathia, our lifeboat captain remarked about the number of our boat It was unlucky number 13. He exclaimed, Well, I shall never say again that 13 is an unlucky number. Boat 13 is the best friend we ever had. I agreed in full. Let it be remembered that boat 13 of the Titanic brought away a full load from the sinking vessel. It carried us in great comfort and landed us safely at the side of the Carpathia. The final step of our unforeseen adventure now awaited us. Getting on the Carpathia and reaching land safely. This is the end of part five. Part six will be released on this podcast in about one to two months. But if you would like to listen to all six parts of this story right now as a single, continuous, two-and-a-half-hour mega-episode, then just become a Silk Plus member and check out bonus episode number eight. This is free for a limited time. It also includes access to 500 other podcast episodes, including my other Titanic series called Titanic 360. If interested, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Thank you for listening to my podcast.